Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And I'm your always friendly local ER doc, Dr. Ward. And I am proud the Sandman putting you to sleep every week. We don't always necessarily want people going to sleep. This is not a surgery, Proz. It's what I do best. They don't feel a thing. <laughs> well, guys, this is my all-time favorite holiday of my all-time favorite month. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween, gentlemen. Woo! So. We're going to tell you a couple tales tonight that might keep you up. And once again, it's time for our yearly Halloween special, where we're going to talk about all these spooky things that are tied to medicine. And believe me, there's a lot of those. Yeah, medicine is a spooky subject to begin with. And we're going to go deep and talk about the spookiest in our profession. But before we do that, I did find out a, a pretty interesting piece of information researching this episode, which ties into medicine in a way you might not expect. Are either of you familiar with bone china? Peripherally, but... Yeah, I'll admit, when I when I go to museums, I kind of skip the whole plates, dishes, silverware sections. You know, before I read research for this show, no, I've never heard of bone china. And for most of us who, you know, buy their dishes at Target, <laughs> this is probably not in the Martha Stewart collection. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> well, for those of you who are unclear on the difference, porcelain china in the 1600s was very, very popular, and you know, 1600s to 1700s, and it was made by firing ceramic and pottery clay in a very specific way that made it quite hardy. Well, 
the prices, the rising prices of this meant that all the people over in England, merry old England, wanted their own, but they didn't necessarily want to pay to import it. Well, one enterprising young gentleman, Thomas Fry, owner of the Bow Porcelain Factory in East London, thought about, well, how am I going to get red clay to look white? And he decided to mix in cow and ox bones from the nearby cattle markets and slaughterhouses. And this created the very first iteration of white bone china. Now, adding burnt bone into the clay, and that's directly into the clay, not the glaze, adding burnt bone into the clay actually makes the pottery much more durable. Because think about it, it's pretty hard to fracture bone. If you fall down, you're not shattering like china. So if you're mixing in bone, the resultant pottery and ceramics and bone china is much more durable and has a high mechanical strength and much harder to chip. So it got to be known as bone china. You may not be aware that while bone china has to consist of about 33 to 50% burnt animal bone, studies have actually shown that most bone china also includes anywhere from 1 to 3% human remains. I wonder where they get all the human bones to add in. Well, aside from your friendly neighborhood serial killers, who, that's a pretty clever way to dispose of bodies, I think. You know, oh, well, where's Grandma? Uh, In the china cabinet. (laughs) That'd be an interesting twist, huh? Make Grandma the urn and the contents. (laughs) But how how do you think that 3% of human remain ended up uh, into these bone china? Well, this still happens today, but as best I could tell is that a lot of potters are very often quite close to crematoriums because the general burning smell of clay and hide and tanning and all the leather workers and things that create foul smells are usually in the same part of town. And if you've ever been to a crematorium or listened to our death episodes, you learn that when you cremate somebody... 100% of them does not make it into the urn. Little bits and pieces do stay in the the oven. So some of these urns could have a good stiff gust of wind, could blow a little bit of the ashes over into the next nearest urn. And you might have a crematorium on one end of the street and a pottery a little bit down the road, and some of their ashes will end up getting mixed. And then you have people who they decide this is how they want to honor their loved ones. So rather than cremating them and just keeping an an urn around, they actually specifically want their loved ones to be turned into China. And those will be the ones that have a lot more than 3% bone. So you could, in fact, have tea time with grandma in an entirely different way. From beyond the grave. I think my grandparents would like being a tea set. You know, it's interesting now that I think about it. If those small pieces of bone from the crematorium could make it all the way into the pottery, who knows what else in our house has human remains in it, you know? (laughs) I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Every time I I eat a hot dog, I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, you know, no one ever really knows what's in those to begin with. Grandma. So apparently this is actually a tradition among potters, and I don't know a lot of potters aside from maybe Harry, but a lot of potters will ask to have their ashes thrown into their own kilns after they die and have their cremated remains coat pots and pieces for the next generation. So I thought that was a nice little opening of life after death. So ask your parents, if you have anything marked as bone china, 
It may not be only animal bone that's in it. Would you, Josh? Would I be cremated into yeah, plates? Yeah, would you put some of your remains, immortalize yourself, so to speak, into a teacup? Absolutely. I mean, you you know, Ward, we have the the Dr. J family mausoleum is in the garage of my family home, and that's where we kept the ashes of a number of our relatives en route to the graveyard. So, you know, putting them into plates and cups really is not that far a stretch. That is disturbing, considering I have been into your garage and stumbled around before. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, they're not there anymore, but they were in the file cabinet, filed under D for dead Dworetskis. Yikes. Double D. (laughs) (laughs) But now that we've talked about having plates made of bone, I thought it'd be fun to go into our first spooky story of, well, a creepy breakfast cereal. If you grew up anywhere in the U.S., you probably encountered three particular cereals, Count Chocula, Boo Berry, and Frankenberry. Uh, We still see Count Chocula around to this day. Well, Frankenberry's still around a little bit, but they were introduced for the first time in 1972 to compete with Lucky Charms. You know, the idea of let's give kids a brightly colored cereal with a cartoon mascot. And this was a brand new product in 1972. And almost two or three months after it came out, it made it into the medical journal Pediatrics. You you should do yourself a favor and actually YouTube the original... 1972 commercial for Count Chocula. You know, it has, of course, the Count with his, what we assume is a Transylvanian accent, like, oh, delicious chocolatey cereal. And then (laughs) this bright pink Frankenstein monster walks in and you're expecting maybe a Boris Karloff or Russian type voice, and instead he has a British accent. He's like, I say, and you can also enjoy delightful Frankenberry. Here's the problem. Shortly after this cereal was introduced, a whole rash of children began showing up in emergency rooms with complaints of possible concerns for GI bleeds and gastrointestinal hemorrhages. Now, Ward, you're in the ER. So, you know, let's say you're in the 70s, you're a practicing ER doc, and a small child comes in and the mother is frantic telling you that he has been pooping bright red, but the kid looks happy, healthy, with no other complaints. First of all, you know that mother's going to bring me a whole bag of poop, which always happens in the ER when people have bowel movement complaints. If I do actually see a sandwich bag full of red poop, that is very concerning as a doctor because that is one of the few medical emergencies that can deteriorate quickly. And I, I think the fact that the child is looking happy and running around would give me pause, but I would fully work up that kid. Were the Frankenberries only out during Halloween times, or were they a regular year-round treat? Year-round, but they were first introduced because the condition actually got its own special name. It was known as Frankenberry Stool. Oh, wow. And this is from the February issue of 1972 Pediatrics. So it was introduced on the article that actually says... The breakfast cereal under discussion has only been on the market a few weeks, which means it probably was introduced around January. That's a genuine concern if you see kids with bright red stool. Absolutely. Absolutely. The beloved Frankenberry cereal was once medically found to cause pink poop to such a degree that it got the name Frankenberry stool. And here's what happened. In the case study that first brought this to light, 
A 12-year-old boy was hospitalized for four days after being admitted for a rectal bleed. When he was brought in, the stool had no abnormal odor, but looked like strawberry ice cream. Interesting point that usually when there's true gastrointestinal bleeding, that stool has a certain smell. And Josh, I don't know, Praz, probably Praz too, we've all smelled it. We know it from across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody yeah. stool has a very particular odor. And it's not strawberry ice cream-like. Certainly not strawberry. Did it smell like strawberry ice cream, or did it just have that a physical appearance? No, because I promise you, if I could eat something that would make my poop smell like strawberry ice cream, that would be a number one bestseller product. Or a number two bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. So, the ER doctor in question did do a very good history of the mother and child and found out that this child enjoyed a bowl of Frankenberry cereal every day, two days in one, prior to his hospitalization. And by the fourth day, they did a little experiment. They fed the boy four bowls of Frankenberry cereal and nothing else, and for the next two days, he passed bright pink stools. But other than the color, there were no symptoms. He wasn't weak, he wasn't fatigued, his blood levels were fine. Then, they didn't feed him any of the cereal, and his poop went back to normal within about a day and a half. Interesting. Different times. But nowadays, with managed care, you would never keep a kid in a, in a hospital for four days to, to do a test where you feed him cereal. In those times, I wonder, did they actually test the stool from blood like we do commonplace these days? It was the 70s, so probably, because they were concerned that he would have a rectal bleed. And there were a number of different cases that came up. Remember, when, when this case report was written, the serial had only been out for a couple of weeks. So mm. it took a little while to figure out what was actually causing the problem. And as we eventually learned, it was red dye number two, which mm. uh, is known as amaranth. It's a color named after the natural flower. It's a dye that can't be broken down or absorbed by the body. And it's actually illegal in the U.S. now in large part because of these Frankenberry stools. So you're saying that red number two caused red number two. (laughs) (laughs) Aptly named. And this actually sort of led to a whole range of the FDA saying what dyes, food dyes, could and couldn't be used. So these days, the only red colors that the FDA permits are red number 40, which is in all five of the General Mills monster cereals, and red number three typically used in fruits. So... A general alert was put out saying, listen, this food dye is specifically causing kids to have bright red colored stools, which are not causing any health risk aside from a change in color. But there was such a panic over it that Mars completely removed red M&Ms for almost a decade. You didn't see there were no red M&Ms the entire 1970s because of this Frankenberry stool. And M&Ms didn't even use red number two at the time. Now, if you want to know how big a deal this was, I don't know if either of you remember a film in the 1980s, a Stephen King film, Cujo. Oh, yeah. Cujo eat some uh, Frankenberries? No, no, no. Cujo didn't eat Frankenberries, but in the Cujo film, when you listen to the radio, there's advertising for a cereal commercial that is failing, and they keep talking about, well, there's a cereal that is Sharp's cereal, which has been banned, in the world of this, a big lawsuit's going on because it's causing a bunch of kids to come in looking like they're having bleeding. So this was such a big scandal that even pop culture movies in the 80s were referencing this Frankenberry stool from the 70s. 
Did you guys ever get patients who bring in different colors of poop? Thankfully, in my profession, I deal with the complete opposite end of the body. So for me, no. (laughs) I did. I've gotten. And in fact, once I learned about this story, I thought back. Here's a fun fact for all of you. Even though red number or red number two has been outlawed, we still use blue number one and blue number one is interesting because that's in the cereal booberry and that turns your stool bright green that's a terrible name to begin with smurfberry crunch if from 1982 had a different blue dye i believe blue number four that turns your poop blue so if you've ever wanted to have a whole bunch of rainbow colored stools And if you'd like to learn more about different colors of stool, as well as the Bristol stool chart, I refer you back to our very first episode of our first season, Have Runs, Will Travel. We've come so far since then, Ward. Have we? So yeah, these serial pooping scares are referenced as a side plot in Cujo, but, you know, have fun. You know, you can go trick-or-treating, buy some booberry, buy some Smurfberry Crunch, and they'll all change the color of what comes out. And I guess it served its original purpose, because Lucky Charms can't give you all the colors of the rainbow the way that these two ones can. <laughs> no, they've only got blue stars, green clovers, yellow moons, <laughs> and red poops. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to our, our next story, how familiar are either of you with demonic possession? Well, I've never been possessed, as far as I know. <laughs> there is that voice that keeps telling me to, <laughs> that counts. Well, I mention it because one of the newest TV shows that's out is The Exorcist television show, which deals with a demonic possession of both a... It starts off with a small boy in some South American country speaking in tongues and contorting his body and becoming very forgetful. And there's one old priest who tries to help, but by and large, people aren't terribly concerned until it happens to a white girl in suburbia, and that's the premise of the whole Exorcist TV show. The reason I bring it up is that demonic possession, at least as it's reported historically, and in some cases even currently today, mostly in Africa, may actually be a diagnosable medical condition, although not in the way you think. The way I think when I hear demonic possession in modern-day practice... Is it's we're usually talking about schizophrenia, you know, hearing voices, the devil tells me to do things. That's usually associated with mental health issues when we uh, in modern day practice. Now I understand in in ancient times, other medical conditions can be attributed to demonic possession. And the Exorcist plays with a little bit of both of these, and they're they're focusing more, I think, on the schizophrenic angle. But if you look back at historical records. A person who is accused of having demonic possession might move, speak, or act unpredictably. They might engage in bizarre behavior like wandering aimlessly while laughing or or fumbling around. They very often, regardless of whatever their bizarre behavior is, they won't remember what they were doing during this episode of possession. Well, Ward, what does that sound like to you? A person who's moving, speaking, acting, contorting and doesn't remember what's going on for at least a couple hours after that episode. Oh boy, that sounds like seizures or drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's not a lot of access to the kinds of drugs that would cause that in biblical times. So really what we're looking at is what we think are complex partial seizures or psychomotor psychomotor seizures. 
you watch a seizure. You're sitting there talking with your friend, and then all of a sudden, they stop making sense, and they drop to the ground, and they're shaking, and they're writhing, and maybe they bite their tongue and some blood comes out, and, or they'll stop and they'll stare off into the distance and not say anything and be completely unaware of you. And then, after that episode is over, you're shaking them and you're saying, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? And they don't recognize you, they don't know their own name, and they have no clue of what's going on. This could look very supernatural to someone who is superstitious or uneducated. Sure. Absolutely. And there's something, there's always been a, an aura of mystery surrounding seizures. And to my medical professional nerds, no pun intended, because you actually will literally do get an aura before you have a seizure. These seizure patients, even when they're not having seizures, it can affect your mental status. It can affect your overall mental health and sense of well-being. And, you know, people back in the days were always looking for an explanation. And very often, I'm sure, it turned to the supernatural. Now, we talk about this in olden days of this, as if this is something that is not a concern anymore. And in the U.S., it's not. You know, epilepsy is almost always treatable in most cases. So any apparent demons will vanish with anti-epileptic medication or anti-convulsant therapy. But if we jump across the world and we travel over to Sierra Leone, there is a huge stigma against people with epilepsy. Because, first off, most of the time, the only doctors available to people in these very rural areas of Sierra Leone and Africa, if assuming the children even get to see doctors, the families will find, they'll witness a couple seizures, and then the child or adult who has this will often be either locked away or banished from the village or severely beaten, believing that they've been possessed by a demon. So the first stop will usually be to the local medicine man or witch doctor. So, Josh, you and I went to a uh, an exhibit on ancient Mongolian traditions. Remember the outfits for the local witch doctors? Yeah. Uh, they were terrifying. They had these old masks. They looked like Halloween costumes. And it kind of instilled this extra layer of supernatural mystery to medicine. They probably wore the bones around their neck or whatever didn't go into our China. Went to the... <laughs> yeah, they had bones. There's a mask or a veil that covers their entire face so you can't see any of the features. And that was to prevent the demons or spirits from seeing the face of the person who was trying to cast them out. So what happens is your witch doctor in the village is going to tell you this child is possessed by a demon and you need to put them in this room with smoke or you need to beat it out of them or you need to do this or that or the other. And the parent, and then along comes a wandering priest because remember Africa still gets a lot of missionaries, both Christian, Mormon, a lot of Western religious denominations will go out and build churches and help to try and improve the community as well as convert it. Well, now you have a priest come in, and there'll always be a medical team. So in this case, the Western one may give them some anti-convulsant therapy, and they give them the pills, and the demons vanish. But the second you run out of pills, because it's really hard to get medical supplies in Africa, all of a sudden it comes back. So what happens? You send them back to the priest. Well, every time you go to the Western priest, they get a pill that keeps the demon at bay for a little while, but then you have to bring them back for repeated visits. So these are not the religious institutions telling you that the child is possessed, but you can quickly see how you could draw that association, meaning, well, I bring them to the church and they get better, and then when they haven't gone to church in a while, all of a sudden, demonic possession is back. 
It certainly makes a lot more sense to people who wouldn't be as educated versus saying that there's something structurally or chemically wrong with the brain. On the other hand, I would take the witch doctor look over the stethoscope and white coat look any day. Dress for the job you want. I would love to see you show up walking into an ER room with your face covered and horns on the side of your head and a necklace of bones. I, I, I'd be very interested to see how that history went. You know what? I, maybe I should apply for a residency in the jungles of Sierra Leone. You'd have a lot less drug seekers. <laughs> you think that. <laughs> Let's move on to our next story. So yeah, ancient, ancient demonic possessions and even current ones may have a lot in common with seizures. So, let's see. In previous Halloween episodes, we've talked about vampires, we've talked about werewolves, we've talked about zombies and all the medical things that may come up with them. You know what we really still haven't had a chance to cover? Witches. And the reason I bring that up is because I was watching Hocus Pocus last night, which is one of my all-time favorite Halloween movies. Oh, that's classic. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area... The Castro Theater every year does a terrific stage reenactment of Hocus Pocus with drag queens who impersonate Bette Midler, and they do a terrific job of that. Does the Castro District in San Francisco still have a crazy Halloween party every year? There is an unofficial party. On the other hand, it got too crowded, and um, there were some um, violence issues. Okay, so now the only big city Halloween party and parade, I believe, is in West Hollywood in Los Angeles. Mm. And that one is, it's not up to the Castro standards, but if you walk around on All Hallows' Eve in WeHo, as we call it, you will see a number of people, drag queens and others alike, dressed in very elaborate costumes, ranging from the simple to the incredibly complicated. And it really is worth, costs nothing, and it's worth walking around. They shut down three or four streets in order to cover the whole area. Let's talk about the Sanderson sisters. They were witches who were burned at the stake in Salem only to come back later. Well, the Salem witch trials are famous. Every child who grew up in America has heard about these Salem witch trials at one point or another. And there are entire philosophical documents going into what caused the witch trials. Was it the stress of Puritan living? Was it this? Was it that? Was it the other? Well, the theory that I'd like to talk about is that all these witch trial woes, or at least the problems of witches, were caused by fungus. Fungus? Yeah, there was a fungus among us. In fact, a very specific fungus, a fungus, a fungal disease known as ergotism, that is a fungus that grows on wheat and rye. Now, the primary staple grain out in Salem, which was a very marshy area, and all that marsh and damp, would make it very easy for fungus to grow. And this specific fungus that only really affects rye is known as ergo. And what ergo can do can cause crawling sensations in the skin. It can cause vertigo or a sense of dizziness or spinning. It can cause audial hallucinations, meaning you would hear voices, just like we talked about with schizophrenia. You would hear voices that may tell you to do things. You could also see things that aren't there. It can cause ringing in the ears, intense headaches, and it can even cause convulsions. It's very similar to the demonic possessions in some ways. To add to the, to the visual 
aspect, it can also cause dry gangrene of your extremities. So your fingertips and your toes appear black and necrotic and are dying off. Yeah, they can even rot off. And that's because this fungus will constrict the tiny vessels. It constricts all your vessels, but the tiny vessels in your fingers only have very limited blood supply. So if your fingers and toes close off that blood supply, they very quickly will die and rot. So, and you get a very burning sensation because the nerves are in pain, but they're not receiving enough blood. So this was known as St. Anthony's fire. Well, the thought is, here's an interesting fact you may not know about this fungus. In addition to all those problems, as we just talked about the contractions, the ergo fungus has had some influence in medicine because it causes very strong uterine contractions in women and has been used historically to induce abortions. So it would be grown in, we'll say, witches' gardens. And we'll talk about witches' gardens in a few moments. But imagine that you have two young, again, two young white suburban girls in the 1600s who live in a very repressive time for sexual exploration. And maybe one of them, the preacher's daughter, gets involved with somebody and finds out, oh, well, now she's expecting a tiny little surprise, which would be at the very least a social death sentence in those times, if not an actual one, to be a young unmarried woman in a Puritan town. Well, all of a sudden, she goes looking for anyone who will not betray her secret but can help her. Maybe she tells her best friend. Maybe she tells the local slave woman. And the local slave woman comes from a tradition of history and voodoo where she knows about this plant that can induce abortions. She doesn't know that if the grain is infected, and only infected in patches, meaning not everyone in town would have all been eating the same rye. They're, they're farmers, remember, so they're growing their own food by and large, so not everybody's going to get the same batches. So this, this slave woman, Tituba, gives her some plant or fungus and tells her this will make the baby disappear and all your problems go away. It works. She tells maybe one or two of her other friends they take it, but then they start getting all these other side effects that we talked about. Well, that could sound a lot like what happened in The Crucible, which is our play version of the Salem Witch Trials, couldn't it? Right. Yeah. As a society, we were always terrified of people who are different from us. And can you imagine if these young ladies got together and formed their own support groups, you know, for whatever reason suffered the consequences of ergotism and they were not now not only socioeconomically different they were they were just different the explanation that were very often used back in those days was the devil now imagine we still have a lot of stigma today against young women seeking abortions it's it's still a very hot button topic in politics Imagine if your choice was either be accused of being a woman of loose morals, a painted Jezebel, who, you know, was pregnant and had taken a plant to kill that unborn life, which you shouldn't have even had to begin with. Or you can simply point to someone and say, oh, uh, she's a witch. And because of her, I'm bleeding and having all these crawling sensations, and look what's happening to me. Well, that's a much easier out, especially if you're a teenager who's not known for being terribly responsible or having, thinking through the, the consequences of all their actions. And guess what? A lot of people in your town also happen to have had a taste of that rye bread or, you know, wheat bread that was contaminated with the ergot, 
and not everybody was you know, in their right minds, so to speak. So that's how mass hysteria spreads. Right. So you've got the girls who used it for one thing, and now maybe feeling crawling sensations and mania. Then maybe the preacher takes it and he hears hallucinations, or the local teacher takes it and gets intense headaches. And all of this, in truth, can be traced back to a few batches of rye that went bad, because you wouldn't necessarily see the fungus on it. It would be, you'd scrape the top layer off the flour and then go ahead and make your bread as usual. So this is not the first time that herbal healers or wise women have been accused of being witches, and it's actually not even the first time we've seen plants accused of being used in witches' brews. You even think back to Shakespeare, you know, double-double toil and trouble, eye of newt and toe of frog. Well, it turns out there's several countries in the world that maintain what are known as witches' gardens, plants that are deadly in one capacity, but we've actually found very useful medical things in another capacity. Let's look back at some of these ones that you find. And one of the more famous witches' gardens that I'm aware of is actually out in Ireland near the Blarney Stone. It's called the Witch's Garden, and it's filled with plants like deadly nightshade and willow bark and belladonna uh, and mandrake plant. Well, Ward, are you familiar? Uh, if I recall correctly, you majored in botany, didn't you? That's correct. I so, was a plant biology major. So why don't you tell us about some of these plant biology? What are some of the different medicines that we've pulled from plants in the past? What didn't we pull from the plants? Aspirin, which is we use aspirin for everything, from headaches to pains to thinning your blood to treating strokes and heart attacks. Well, it has its roots in a witch's garden. It came from willow's bark. That was one of the traditional plants associated with witches. And nowadays, even if you watch modern shows, somehow I got to watch a Hallmark channel about the uh, the Good Witch, the show. Even the witch in that episode talked about willow's bark which is a home remedy, as well as being used in modern medicine. Nightshade, when used in certain circumstances, can be a toxin, but it also has its medicinal uses. The, the foxglove plant, we can purify the active ingredient and make digitalis out of it, and digitalis can be used to treat heart failure in the right doses. Yeah, this was actually, interestingly enough, discovered by a physician... Who, was, uh, who had a patient with heart failure, and this patient decided that they'd rather try more uh, alternative medicine. They went to go see a gypsy, and the gypsy actually gave them the chemical that made them feel better. And the physician decided that he wasn't going to be outshadowed by a gypsy, got the potion, and got the jitalis. Oh, can I tell a spooky tale? Okay, so when I was in medical school, we had this young English lady with us, uh, who's a classmate of mine. <laughs> and uh, when, in, during pharmacology, the, we're studying digitalis and other heart medicines. And she very calmly raised her hand and she said, Well, you know, in England, the foxglove plant was known to be used by housewives as a poison to slowly poison their husbands to death. And, Did uh, she have a reason for that, or she just brought up, like, just so you know? Just so you know, <laughs> just so you know. And uh, we happened, she happened to be a little English housewife, so... She was, keyword was. She was, <laughs> and I, I'm sure she still is, I'm, I'm sure she still is. This is just a spooky tale, but we were all like, how do you, how do you know that? But you could do that without a trace back in the days. 
And it's absolutely true. Digitalis and Foxglove, it has a very narrow therapeutic window, which means the line between poison and medicine is a thin line. Now, I do want to make a couple comments on, on this story, Proz, and just fill in some other details for people who are interested. We use Digitalis to treat heart failure, but back in the 1800s and the, the late 1700s, early 1800s, so again, back in my Victorian Edwardian period, heart failure was not called heart failure because that's not how it was understood. The name for it, which is a great name, was known as dropsy because you could only walk maybe a few feet sometimes or not very far before you became very out of breath and you had to kind of drop to sit down and catch your breath. And very often people who died from dropsy would die and they were found to have these terribly large hearts which would hang very low in the chest. And this was found out during the autopsy. So it was known as dropsy. And the Scottish, the physician you mentioned who, who found this was Scottish doctor William Withering. And he did have this patient who was suffering from dropsy and couldn't be cured. And he, he hunted high and low. He went through all the highlands of Scotland as well as Great Britain until he found the gypsy. And she gave him a copy of the potion and he broke it apart ingredient by ingredient. And the actual name, the Latin name for foxglove is Digitalis purpurea, meaning, you know, the spotted spotted finger-like plant because it looks like a witch's fingernail and if you've ever Mm. seen the purple foxglove it shoots up and the flowers fall in a almost fingernail-like pattern so it looked like a purple finger and that's why it was called foxglove so yeah now the one last one we'll mention is ergo which again was this fungus that we talked about earlier well we still use it today it is very similar in some ways, to Ergonovine, which you probably know better as LSD. So there's your hallucinations again and your alterations from reality. And it's a shame we don't have any neurologists with us because Ergotamine is actually prescribed for various migraine headaches, which is interesting because the plant itself, when it's in its poison form, can cause headaches, but when you cross that narrow therapeutic window, can be used to treat headaches. Well, remember we talked about how it constricts vessels and causes limbs to fall off or fingers to fall off when it's in its toxic dosages. Well, when migraine, part of the problem with migraines is vessels in your brain are overdilated. And most migraine medications that break the migraine cycle constrict your vessels. Going along those lines as well, I often see this in my C-section patients when the baby comes out and there's a lot, a lot of bleeding in some situations. Well, that same constriction of blood vessels can help minimize bleeding after cesarean section or even after regular delivery, and it contracts the uterus as well, which also serves the purpose that it had in the 1600s about back alley abortions. But here we use it to control bleeding in the operating room, normally commonly known as methogen. So we've learned a whole lot about witches' brews and plants. The last one I'm going to tell you before we move on to our, our final story or game of the week is tomatoes. And you may ask yourself, well, tomatoes don't sound like a witch's plant, but you have to understand that, again, back when we go in that same period, tomatoes were not really trusted. They they were introduced around the 15, 1600s, 
And the tomatoes, botanically, look very, very similar to mandrake plants. And mandrake plants are another one of those deadly ones like henbane, nightshade, and hemlock that do have some very narrow therapeutic roots. Ward, do you know what mandrake does? I know if you, from Harry Potter that if you pull them out of the pot, they start screaming, and if you hear the scream, you are toast. Is that right? <laughs> well, mandrake <laughs> plants... The Berkeley do a good job. Mandrake plants are not... They don't actually scream. That's, that is a Harry Potter use only. That's very disappointing. <laughs> I, I know. It is actually... It's derived from two Greek words, mandragora, meaning hurtful to cattle, and the Arabs called it Satan's apple. But the medicinal actions, the root, is a very powerful emetic and purgative. It can make you throw up. It also could be used as a sleeping potion. You could mix it into a few things with jute. The juice of the mandrake plant, infused into wine or water, was said to be very helpful for treating rheumatism and an an early anesthetic for operations. In fact, you'd be interested in this prose as an anesthesiologist. The mandrake root was used in the days of the Greeks for anesthesia. A small piece of the root would be given to the patient to chew before undergoing any kind of operations because it would put you to sleep and kind of numb you in some ways. Interesting. And it is very similar to belladonna, which is where we get atropine, which speeds up your heart when it is beating too slow. Tomatoes potatoes are both in the nightshade family. The stems, the leaves, and, you know, anything in the shoots of the tomato plant or the potato plant are toxic, not unsimilar to nightshades because they contain this toxic alkaloid compound that are common in the entire nightshade family. Tomatoes, as you mentioned, are in the mandrake family, and one of the things you may have heard is their lycopene content. Right, protects the plastics. Hmm. Does lycopene sound like anything to you? Like lycopene, like uh, werewolves related? Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like lycanthropy, doesn't it? Huh, I guess it does. (laughs) So Galen's writings refer to a plant that was the wolf banisher or wolf something, the lycopersian or the wolf peach. And it was thought that wolves would avoid eating this plant, and it came, and they said, well, it may be related to this. And they also thought it could be used as an ointment for witches' brooms to help them fly. But that's a whole other story. So now that we've gone through our witches' gardens, let's talk a little bit about witches and wizards. Ward, you just went to Harry Potter land, didn't you? I did. I had a fabulous time. Those of you who have the time and who are lucky enough to go to Universal Studios in either Orlando or uh, Southern California, you are in for a treat. I went through Hogwarts on the the Forbidden Journey ride. It was amazing to see that in real person. Not to mention, I learned how to do spells and with wands in the correct moves. Did you get sorted into a house? I didn't, but you know what? I know I'm a Hufflepuff. It's for the cool people who are not... Too ambitious, but who don't want to be categorized. Well, you'll be very happy to hear then that the hero of the upcoming Fantastic Beasts movie is a Hufflepuff. That right. Yes. Mm. What about you, Proz? What house do you suppose you'd be? Um, for some reason, I always saw myself as a Slytherin. Interesting. For Interesting. some reason, Proz? Maybe because I'm very stealthy and um, scaly and spend a lot of time in the dark. 
side? Not that you know of yet. <laughs> I always saw myself as either a Ravenclaw or Slytherin because I loved the idea of potions and history and learning as much as I can about everything. So I guess I'd probably sort into Ravenclaw. But I thought it might be fun. We did play a very similar game once before where I asked you guys if you could tell the difference between Harry Potter spell or pharmaceutical drug. And Ward, since you just came back from Harry Potter land, I'd like to give you two both another quiz where now that we've talked about all these witches' spells and how different things tie into medicine, I'm going to ask you, is this a Harry Potter spell or part of the human anatomy? All right, I'm ready. I I am a doctor, so I should know my anatomy. And I just came back from Harry Potter world. Should be interesting. Number one. Taurus Levatorius. That's got to be a spell. Yeah, it sounds like you use it to levitate a tortoise. Or a bull. Oh, yeah, or a bull, yeah. Or a Ford car that's not been <laughs> in production for a few years. It is anatomy. It is the bulge in the lateral or sidewall of the nasopharynx. I might have been drinking so. butterbeer that day of anatomy. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. That was a hard one. I purposely wanted to pick one for you that would be a little tricky because, you know, people at home expect that, of course, we know anatomy terms. We're doctors, right? Well, now you know there's a lot of anatomy terms, and Latin is a very easy one. So, let's move on to the next. Number two. Incarcerous. Spell. I, I agree. That sounds like a spell that you use to incapacitate someone. Or to contain You are you are correct. The incarcerous spell conjures thick ropes or thin cords from thin air to bind the person or creature. Now it does sound very similar. I thought I could get you guys, because incarcerated is something that can happen to a mm. hernia. Meaning it is all bound up and captured. So we do use this very similar term in medicine, but it's not part of the human anatomy itself. Yeah. All right, next one. Sella Tersica. That's definitely anatomy. That's definitely anatomy, yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually part of the brain somewhere in, inside, the, inside the skull. By the pituitary. Yeah, where the pituitary sits. Right, and it's called Sella Tersica because it is a bone shaped like a Turkish saddle, and your pituitary gland rides in that saddle. Yay. Yeah. Okay, next one. Levy Corpus. That sounds like a spell. That sounds like a spell to me, too, but what would it be? I mean, raise your body? It would be like a levitation sort of spell, I would think. To raise your but that's a levatorium. I've watched all episodes of Harry Potter. I'm going to say that's anatomy. And it is a jinx. It is a spell that causes the person to be hoisted into the air. All right, next one. Cauda equina. Anatomy. Yeah, that's definitely anatomy. <laughs> okay, and you are both correct. Cauda equina is... Ward, do you want to go into what that is? Sure. The cauda equina essentially is the horse's tail in Latin. And it's... Um, it's Well, it's not the horse's tail. It's our tails, so to speak. 
it's the end of the spinal cord and where the spinal cord splits off into large nerve bundles. And it's um, it's usually in our lumbar spine. So that's the cauda equina. Right, and those and that bundle of nerves looks a lot like a horse's tail. Hence the name. Alright, we're halfway through, guys. Pier totem locomotor. I'm saying that's a spell. That's a spell. I think I've heard Hermione say it. And yes, that's that's a transfiguration spell to bring artifacts to life that were previously unmoving. Next one. Here you go, guys. Fernunculus. Fernunculus. Ooh, that's tough. That is tough. Um, I'm going to say anatomy. So fernuncle is a boil that's kind of like bigger than a pimple but smaller than an abscess. But fernunculus, I'm going to say that's a curse. You know what? I think I agree with you. I think I'm going to say it's a curse. Oh, I thought I would get you to with that one, because you're right, Ward. A fur uncle is usually a boil or a blister that normally develops from an ingrown hair. And furunculitis is that. But the fur nun is the pimple jinx. It's a spell that causes a person to break out in boils when it comes in contact with their skin. And Harry tried to use the spell on Draco but it was deflected and hit Gregory Goyle in the face. Uh, so I really thought I would get you guys with that one. I think okay. I hit that one right. with that curse in my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Next one. Salvio Hexia. That's a spell. Yeah. That, I'm trying to think of a medical... Have I ever said, oh, doctor, this person's Salvio Hexia is... <laughs> is dislocated. No. No, yeah, that's a that's a curse. You are you are correct. It is a it's actually a spell to deflect hexes. Save me from hexing. Oh. Salvio hexia. And I know you all can't see it at home, but I promise you that every time I'm saying one of these, I'm actually waving my hands about as if it were a spell and using my wand from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them that I got at Comic-Con. So I'm having a grand old time pretending to be a wizard over here. Well, you know, you actually have to. So if you went to Harry Potter World and you bought one of their wands, you can actually go to specific displays and do a spell saying... I don't I don't know if you have to say the spell, but I always said it for good luck. And wave your wand in a particular way so that a spell takes place. And if you do it correctly, things will happen. Like a book will levitate or a, uh, a flower will open. Hmm. Hmm. And if you do it just off by a little bit, it doesn't Wow. Happen. Yeah. All right. We're almost to the end. Next one. Infundibulum. <laughs> I really, really wish I had a webcam right now. I picture Josh putting on a, <laughs> put on a robe and waving his wand around. But that is an anatomical trick. Yes, it is. It is. I, I admit, I started running out of spells that I could fool you with. And it's the stalk that connects the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Uh, it's also known as the pituitary stalk. I'm realizing the pituitary is very witch-like. So many Latin names for yeah. it. Alright. Last one, you guys. 
Harry Potter spell or part of human anatomy? The Conus Medullaris. I will give you points for just style. (laughs) 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 And enunciation. And pronunciation. That sounds like an anatomical. Yeah. Yeah, it's anatomical. It is, and it is the upper front part of the right ventricle of the heart, and also the name of the lowest extremity of the spinal cord. Hmm. So you go the conus medullaris into the cauda. So let's see how you guys did. And at the end, you scored uh, 70%. So passing grades, um, 10 points to Hufflepuff and 10 points to Slytherin. Yay! So that's it for our Halloween special. We will be back next week with another great episode. In the meantime, Praz, why don't you provide us with just the tip, and then we'll hear from a very special guest. One of the things I've been doing is, in our travels, we've been talking to some of our listeners and getting your travel stories, and we're going to start hearing more from you on Just the Tip as well. So if you would like to leave your own travel story, you can call us up at Google Voice. It's in the show notes. Leave a message, and you may hear yourself on a future episode. But until that time, Praz, why don't you tell us this week's Just so, the Tip? Um, starting tomorrow and for the next few days over... Halloween weekend, or much of what people are going to be celebrating on Halloween weekend, I'll be spending my my time in exotic New Orleans, which is a city that, um, obviously, other than its debauchery and drinking and Mardi Gras, is also known for its history of folklore and particularly witchcraft and hauntings. So of all weekends that I could spend over there, I'm very excited to go in here and explore and delve into this some more. Maybe I'll have some witches brews of my own. Maybe we'll see some um, some interesting um, demonic possessions. Who knows? Anything's possible, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about it next time. All right, and so that is one to look forward to. And here is a little clip from one of our listeners. Hi, I'm Sarf. I'm originally from Long Island, but I currently live in Funabashi, which is very close to Tokyo. And um, my favorite place in Tokyo is Nihonbashi. It literally means Japan Bridge. And it's not a site that really strikes you just by the way it looks. It doesn't stand out like Tokyo Tower or Shibuya or any of the other places, but I kind of accidentally stumbled upon it one day. I got off at the wrong station, I started crossing a bridge, and I saw a plaque. So I took a look at it, and I'm like, hmm, so this is Nihonbashi, huh? Oh, really? And I started reading it. Um, turns out it is the center of Japan. All the major roads in Japan meet at Nihonbashi. Back in my old town where I lived, several hours north of Tokyo, there's a r- road, Route 4, which is one of the roads that meets up in Nihonbashi. And what really surprised me about this place is how much historical value it holds. It was the center of old Tokyo. There's actually a replica of the old Nihonbashi in Haneda Airport. If you go to the Edo uh, Museum in Ryogoku, you're going to see a full-scale replica of this bridge. It's really famous, but when you actually go there, it's just some crummy little bridge under a much bigger bridge. 
And, like, you really get a sense of history and how time changes when you're there. How the city of Tokyo transformed from this old classic city into the modern metropolis that it is now. And I just thought it was a really fascinating place to visit. So, yeah, that's my story. So that's it for this week, you guys. We, As always, we love your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Squarespace, on iTunes, wherever you download the podcasts. So if you want to support us emotionally, leave us a comment or a five-star rating. If you'd like to support us spiritually, give us a call. Tell us you know, other things you'd like to hear. If you'd like to support us financially, go to our Patreon page and click the donate link. For only a dollar a month, we will personally thank you at the end of every episode. For $5 a month, you get bonus content. Until next time, guys, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.